Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Welcome back, everybody, to True Obscure for TV, a lovely little movie podcast we do every week with my friend Dean. Say hello to people. Hello. We just take some time every week to watch some movies and, and see what we think of them. You know, we, we we love the movies out there, and we love specifically scary movies, which is one thing we're kind of going over throughout October, as people do. This week, we thought we'd take a look at a particular scary movie-ish, kind of. We have, we have thoughts, but... We're using it to kind of broach the questions in a larger conversation we have with our fascination with a little movement called folk filmmaking. Now, Dean, why don't you give us a little logline about what folk filmmaking is? What's what's the basic rundown? Okay, so what folk filmmaking is is like this weird film movement thing that people are classifying as a new film movement in the vein of like French New Wave. New Hollywood, German, like, New Wave cinema, where the objective is to make your movies very cheaply, release them directly to YouTube, and basically remove the paywall to see your content. Generally, they're in the vein of, like, mumblecore films. A lot of dialogue, non-professional actors, not so high-budgeted, and the only thing that really distinguishes it is that it completely removes studio distribution, studio funding, and does not attempt to go into the festival circuit. Yeah, folk film does not like big Hollywood, as they put it. That's one thing that they really rally around against. And he's technically right. Um, Three tenets, free, independent, and, well, I guess there's only two tenets, because the third tenet is that big Hollywood thing. And I have a lot of questions as to whether that's really as valid as they're putting it but we'll get into that later why don't we why don't we run over real quick to the the film what we're going to be focusing on in the middle of this conversation sheep theater by well pretty much solely by dan lots yeah he made this during quarantine and i watched a little like making of thing he he because he talked about this on his youtube channel 922 films yes and he basically said that it was a no-crew shoot. It was literally just him. He's the main actor. He wrote it. He directed it. He did all that stuff. He had a couple of other people in the film. Like, his friends were other actors, but they shot, like, off-site. Like, they set up their own camera and filmed themselves and sent him the footage. Yeah, seems like to me just they were in their own homes as well. And, you know, you call up your buddy over FaceTime and say, let's shoot a scene together and see how that works out, which, you know... It was finished. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and Sheep Theater is this very interesting horror film, grief film, black comedy drama. And I know I said like a lot of genre stuff there, but it it, it qualifies as all of that at very different points in the movie. Yes. It, it's a, like a lesson to me in when your inspiration needs outside help. Because like Dean said, there's these moments in the movies that the, the tone shifts from horror movie is kind of set up or or grief movie even i think is one term that you used right yeah uh, and that's like the the first 15ish minutes seems like that's where you're going something like that yeah at times the plot 
points or, or specific scenes that are supposed to be setting up certain things bleed into like a parody like comedy, which in hindsight, I, I, I see the tongue and cheekness that is them trying to make fun of the fact that this is the way they're making the movie. You know, they're all in separate places and they have to do certain things out of not being able to get together and do things a certain way, such as having phone calls where we're explaining exposition, which seems ridiculous when you say it out loud. So, of course, we got to make fun of it in the story. As a viewer, I don't know if it works. In hindsight, it's like, okay, I see how that was fun for the filmmakers in the moment. And altogether, it just kind of comes to not support a full piece, in my opinion. Because I think this could have just done better with, like, somebody specifically writing a script, somebody specifically taking their take on it, and then somebody specifically shooting it. And if all things, the cinematography is probably the strength for me. Yeah, I do think this looks good. I think the sound's pretty solid across the board. It is interesting because the story itself is a little strange. You know what? Like, you want to just run down the story real quick, run down the plot? Why don't we? Because this sheep theater has a lot going on on stage, as they say. Okay, because I wrote down, like, little plot beats of this film to make it a little bit easier, because I'm not going to lie, it took me four times to watch through this film in its entirety. Sure. Enlighten us, Gene. So, we open. During the global pandemic, Dan plans his suicide after the death of his wife, but before that, he wallows in his misery beforehand namely powering back coronas and drinking beer and watching tv and that is the first 15 minutes of this film relatable <laughs> relatable that was your that was your pandemic life well that was a lot of people's but you know but i see how yes you're right in that it probably goes on for quite a long time it's really long and and because he says at the beginning he's gonna plan to like kill himself right yeah does he ever attempt anything like, I don't know if that's actually in the movie. Well, no, I think he's interrupted by the haunting of Connecticut, is I think how I'll put it. You know, the the moment where all of a sudden doors slam and he he marches through the house with his candlelight. Because I think that's what, that's what sets up the candlelight, is he's about to, like, pop the pills and just kind of, like, soak into the warmth of darkness. But then, like, a, a poltergeist happens, and then he's drawn to that, and it completely rips him away from the depression you know in hindsight i'll give you this the the suicide seems much more circumstantial and plot-like than it at all does seem true to how that should be handled is a, is a poor way of describing it yeah it's one of those things where it's really weird because it's set up with oh dan wants to do this because his wife died like right before the pandemic started and that makes sense to me and I'm like, okay, yeah, this is he's dealing with a lot of grief, a lot of sadness. Then quarantine happens, he's completely isolated, and he just wants to end it. I'm like, okay, I, I can get into this like character here. In this state of mind, I can understand this and I can I can rock with it. And then Dan Lotz just completely ignores it for the next like 40 minutes of the movie. Yeah. Well, I I it's weird because it comes back around in ways, but then this turns into a weird comedy thing and you know, what, I'll just move on to the next point, sure. all right? Because, you know, Dan gets in contact with his friend Joel or whatever, who tells him to go full Tom Hanks and sends him something to help. And Dan then gets the box of stuffed sheep. Lovely. 
cuddly. Again, the stuffed sheep is another weird thing where it's like, why is that there? Why specifically sheep? Um, is that just like out of necessity sheep? I could see how, because there's a, there's an element to, we were talking about film movements earlier. The Dogma 95 movement was really big into only using like props, materials, etc. that you had on hand on location. Yeah, use what you find, right? Yeah, it's not a tenet of the folk film movement, but I feel like that's at least a quality of the folk film movement in that you use what you have to keep your budget low. So what I think is that these stuffed sheep were something that Dan Lotz had on hand, works them into the story, bada bing, bada boom, you get some stuffed sheep in the mail. And sure, but I just think that, I, I do think... If it raises your prop or your budget 50 bucks to buy like a prop that makes a little bit more sense, buy the prop. <laughs> that That's your that's going to be your critique of the entire movie. Bro, you could have just spent like 50 more bucks and you would have raised the production value here. A little bit because it's like it. I was OK with the sheep upon initial viewing and I'm like not against the execution of how they are then used throughout most of the movie. I'm not against it. It's more to the fact that, yeah, maybe something like one and one that is a much more specific thing would have made more sense. Like, there's a movie called Lars and the Real Girl where it's like he falls in love with a, a sex doll, technically. And not necessarily a sex doll, but something mm -hmm. along those lines where it's like, oh, he's going crazy with a friend that's imaginary. Not, he's going crazy talking to a bunch of stuffed sheep. But... Uh, we, as we will finish the plot, let's let's finish through it. I have a point about the movie that I think would have tied it a lot more together. No worries, no worries. I'm going to tell you the next one, and then we're probably going to have to stop for each one of these, because I have comments about this as we go on. Sure. Because the next one is Dan starts treating the sheep like real people, and like takes care of them, reading bedtime stories, you know, adopts the sheep as like a surrogate family while he's trapped in quarantine. And then the sheep become alive. Right. Why are they alive? So this is kind of my fix for the movie that I thought was going to happen and I wanted to happen after it was done, but it never did. Or at least I'm not, I, in my opinion, it didn't come to fruition. I can, I'm okay with the sheep being alive because, again, we're basically in Dan's point of view the whole movie. There's nobody else's point of view we're seeing this from. So I expected some Dan's going crazy stuff quote-unquote, to happen throughout the movie, where we were going to start seeing crazy shit, and it's because he's alone and going insane, and that would justify story logic. But it is kind of never explained, totally, how the sheep are alive. Because it is also a gag, kind of, and no pun intended, later in the movie, when his friend Joel, who initially sent the sheep, has apparently been bound and gagged for days, but is still struggling to get out. <laughs> Those sheep locked him up real good. The sheep also move on their own and they do stuff to him. Are the sheep other ghosts? Or my biggest question is, did Joel ship the sheep to himself first and then ship him to Daniel? Like a psychopath? Instead of just going on Amazon and putting in Dan's address and being like, that's what a normal person would do? I just no, no. realized that right now. My, my assumption is that Joel was being tormented by the sheep and like off screen when Joel is calling Dan, is there's a sheep there with a shotgun being like, all right, you're going to send us to this Dan boy, all right? Which is a good point, because it's like, it could be one of those stories where it's like, it's the forbidden locket, and we have to give it to her, so the curse transfers. You know, it's like a curse transfer story. Yeah. And I get that. 
But maybe this is pointing out a symptom of the larger thing where it's like applause for making a movie during COVID. But this is why just making a movie during COVID doesn't mean it's going to turn out 100% is how I'll put it. Because there's a lot of ingredients in the mix and it's not congealing inside your Betty Crocker cake mixer, you know? I mean, the things that aren't really congealing is how... Dan kind of treats them after because he goes through this whole thing where it's almost like one of those it's like getting to know you montages in like a romantic comedy where it's like they're sitting there they're watching back to the future they're like getting food they're like the sheep are kind of being dicks to him it's it's really weird and then it ends with this really just jarring depression bit from Dan and then it goes back into it being kind of the pseudo comedy again right but after it's that pseudo comedy, we get back to Dan rallying the sheep to help him fight the ghost, which has not been present for most of the movie. Yeah, it showed up in the first half and then it disappears. And some part of me could also see again. This is me trying to explain away certain things that are legitimately wrong with the writing. I could see where it's like, oh, the sheep are coming alive because of the same forces that happen to be fueling the poltergeist in his house which assumedly is happening because of his dead wife they could be two halves of the same whole and that one is the dark energy and one is the light energy except for the sheep are also for some reason evil i don't know what the explanation is but it could have been anything it could have been anything and this is just like this is just like my stamp of please if you're writing something go back and make sure for the love of god your exposition links up tight like a chain link well, if you want something linked up tight like a chain link, it's the next bit where the sheep drug and tie up Dan. And I'm curious how the sheep were able to tie Dan up onto that chair. And I, well, how, str- it was set up well, how strong are the sheep? That's another question. Because uh, like Dan Lotz is a full grown man and I, I don't think these sheep can move things very well. It, it would be a fascinating deleted scene to go back and even see how that is that's where i'm willing to give my suspension of disbelief don't get me wrong all right all right that that's just me being nitpicky at that point i mean it's a, it's a valid criticism it's just like there's some part of me that's watching this movie and i'm like within the within the story rules i guess that makes sense like i said that was the one thing that was set up earlier in the movie with them kidnapping and drugging and tying up his friend who had sent them so who knows? I mean, I'm going with magic. They, could, they have to have magic. They could be predator level strong, for all we know. I like that. The sheep are the predator eggs that were sent down to capture lonely men. But yeah, so Dan's now tied up, and then the poltergeist makes itself known and confronts Dan. And then Dan realizes the ghost is his wife, and then he accepts her death and passing. And then the sheep untie him. He goes to the park where they proposed. And then he buries her locket in the ground as the sheep look on, proud of a job well done. Credits. Is this a deserved ending? I have no clue. I have no clue how to... I don't know what to make of it, is how I'm going to come down to it. Like, again, this this is one thing where it's like, based on the conversation we'll get into in the second half, I'll give it some leniency in that, above all else, went out, made a feature film. It's tough to do. It's a tough feat to do in the first yeah. place, regardless of all the things that you need to, like, dot your I's and cross, cross your T's or whatever the hell. 
but it still is proof in the pudding that you should really pre-production your stuff like you need to make sure that script is tight you need to make sure that your shots are tight you need to make sure there's a plan and there's some part of me that can see through the movie to see that this was kind of a figure it out as I go thing and that's fine I'm not saying that movies that are produced that way aren't valid necessarily because some of them do end up seeing the light at the end of the tunnel I mean, what is it, French New Wave? I think Breathless was like that in um, Band of Outsiders. They were There was no script. It was an outline that they went and shot. And those are some of the most important films of the French New Wave. It leaves you up to... It just leaves you open to a lot of problems at the end of the, at the, end of the day. And again, fulfilling probably for Dan, but as an audience member, there were things that I was scratching my head about and... It's something that I think he could fix, definitely. I think that there is potential to go and fix this in another piece. There's always potential to do, to do better with your next piece. But it, it it's all stuff that I'm like, there was a lot of time in quarantine. I feel like you could have fixed these things. It's one of those things where I was watching it. And I don't know. I always felt like it was on the verge of being like really, really good. Because the opening of it, where it's that very big, open, wide on the graveyard, and it starts to him being, like, spiraling into this depression, and I'm like, I can kind of get behind this. It looks really clean. The sound's really nice. Dan Lotz really is acting here. I can kind of get behind this. And then the sheep show up. And I think that's where it loses me is when the sheep show up. I can't invest in the sheep as agents of good, bad, or Dan going crazy. I just, I don't know the rules of the sheep, so it's hard for me to really figure it out. It does. Because I don't know what they can do. Yeah, it does go three different directions, and those directions get further and further apart the more they go. Um, I think he he just kind of need to choose one where... Like you said, the, the the opening, the opening shot specifically too, I think is very beautiful. In my opinion, I think Dan Lotz is a much more visual filmmaker, and that's the thing that I think is troubling about the sh- the folk film thing, right? If we want to get back to this thing as a whole, okay, yeah, we'll we'll talk about folk filmmaking as a whole because that's kind of why we brought Sheep Theater to the table. Sure, and and one thing that I I think troubles me about the movement is it is it discourages or doesn't like factor in collaboration it might in certain cases i'm not saying it doesn't always i think it factors in collaboration it's just it's a different kind of collaboration it's not it's like not the time-tested one though where it's like in most film productions people know that you are required to use that collaboration to really keep testing your ideas the further and further you go. I don't... What do you mean? Like, okay, so with the fact that this was one filmmaker in the middle of quarantine, right? Yeah. I get how that's like a physical limitation. But there's just some part of me like when, for example, if there was a script at one point and he sends it out to people and they would have noticed at least like certain scenes in the way he's interacting with the sheep don't line up with scenes that are setting up in the beginning where we thought we were going to get that much more serious, much more dark thing. And then the comedy bits in the middle, people would have pointed out the whole, yeah, this isn't what I thought I was going to get. And 
there's a very weird and noticeable tonal shift about halfway through this script. Yeah. Or that also, frankly, would come through in things like people on set noticing, like, this is kind of weird how this is coming together. Or alternatively, in the edit bay, when you have maybe an editor and it's independent of you, the director or producer or whoever you are, would be like, okay, I have questions <laughs> about the way the cut is coming together. Because, yeah, all those people's job isn't necessarily to dictate the whole. That's what you, the writer-director or director's job is. But they certainly can reach out as, like, pseudo-audience members or your collaborators and say, I don't know if what you're thinking is totally coming together, guy. Well, the argument I have for this film specifically is that Dan Lotz admitted this was a completely improvised um script i think he had like the thing where it's like oh you have an outline beat it out but almost everything was improvised from my understanding so i i feel that's a issue because i look i sympathize with daniel lots i hate writing scripts they are the bane of my existence they take so fucking long and half of it gets thrown out once you start actually shooting but i think he probably really should have written something more than an outline definitely yeah. I mean, he didn't have to write dialogue, but I feel there's very large pieces here that were just kind of shoot from the hip on the day and figure it out. Yeah, that it that's exactly how it feels to me. I, I don't know. But I don't think that's a crime with folk filmmaking. I think that's just something that Daniel Lotz is guilty of. He hates writing scripts, so he makes his films very from the hip. Which is just, I would I would counterpoint and say it's like there's a lot of necessary evils within filmmaking. Uh, and, and one of them just has to be like you need to really batten down the hap- hatches in the script writing phase. Um, and I don't know, I, I just feel like in the way that scripts are normally done, again, kind of going back to this idea that there's big Hollywood and then there's folk filmmakers... In all, the, in all of the articles and interviews and videos I've, I've currently compiled on the folk filmmaking movement, it pretty much negates like an entire section of the industry in the middle, right? Like between mm-hmm. these guys who have no money and one camera in a dream and people who are making like Marvel movies, which is totally not how the entirety of the industry is structured. There's like 10,000 different levels in between those that all all are doing what technically the top studios are doing just with the resources they have. They all try to make sure that script is good. They all try to plan, plan, plan. They all have specific ways that they interact on set and go through that just because those are like 100-year-old practices that just because breaking into Hollywood, quote-unquote, is tougher nowadays, doesn't mean that you should throw those out with the bathwater. Well, I think what they're specifically throwing out is the big money and big distribution methods for folk filmmaking, at least from what I can figure, is that they don't want to be held down by big studio money, and and they don't want to be held back by a paywall for releasing their films. And that's the thing. Like if you release your if your film only costs you a hundred bucks and a and a couple of days of your time, then you can release it on YouTube and it's it's whatever. I mean that has been a t- tried and tested method of YouTube success since the dawn of YouTube. 
True. And I don't think that that is necessarily the problem. I think it's like trying to combine things that aren't meant to be combined. Um, Because like going back to your point about like big studio money, like holding them down. I don't know about about big studio money would hold anybody down, frankly. It's because the big studio tells you to do something. And if you say no, they have the money. They can just tell you to go fuck yourself. I don't, I don't know if that's like a necessarily true representation of how that works, though. Because we still Bruh. get movies. There are some they- movies that are still heralded by a lot of creative freedom. And if anything, more creative freedom because you have hundreds of millions of dollars to do whatever the fuck you want. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, dude, but you get you get the hundred million dollars after you become fucking Steven Spielberg to do whatever the fuck you want. Yeah, but it, here's one that here's an example we could go to. Dennis Villeneuve. He's just yeah. released his big blockbuster piece that mm-hmm. technically should have never been funded. Like if you look at the history of Dune as an IP, nobody should have funded it. There's like it hasn't worked before. Why would we go back and do it? They let a greater uh, director have creative vision to like fulfill whatever he wanted to do with the piece in faith that he would do it justice well that was after he made blade runner 2049 which was like oscar nominated and made a shit ton of money but a financial flop hey this dude could just be the the oscar bait and award season film like you got to remember you know some studios they pump money in for the prestige releases so they can have the oscar wins because that's how you make the money on the ass end yeah, but I think just like that's proof in the pudding that I don't think it's necessarily that they hold a check over your head and say, do whatever we want, monkey. You know what I mean? Like, Bruh, like I'll tell you that there is way more movies that are dance monkey dance for this paycheck than your creative visionary. Have a hundred million dollars and show me your art. Like, you've got to be honest with that. There's way more where it's dance monkey dance. Disney wants you to make a movie. How many... How much of that's the such Marvel a specific movies... example, though? <laughs> okay, but let's be real here. How many big studio IPs are controlled by the checkbook more than the artist? Big well, studio IPs, the ones that actually get a hundred million dollar greenlit. Okay, here's here's what I would say in response to the specifically. Let's look at Disney there for a second, right? Sure. Disney, yes, is it is a, a big studio meant to make? products that's what they're doing yeah we looked specifically at one recently corella huge financial success everybody liked it uh and it's specifically having to do with one of disney's most popular ips 101 dalmatians you know it was going to it was going to be slam dunk even if it was bad make them money but that's kind of the point is like what specifically is the thing that disney's being like you're just here to be the director and say action. We're going to make sure we control everything. I don't, I just feel like it's a conspiratorial, like almost Big Brother, which is again an extreme use of the de- definition. Where it's like I don't I don't know if that's how they're working with the director or other people that are working on the movie because other people than the director work on these movies. I mean, I just keep going back to the fact that there's so many of these directors and stuff who make these movies. Like, um, Edgar Wright, he walked from Ant-Man because he didn't, because the studio kept giving him notes and shit, and he said, fuck off, and he and he left. And he's totally had creative control to do other things other than that. Exactly, but the one time they gave him a hundred million fucking dollars to do something, and they started pushing him, he's like, okay, fuck off, I can go make whatever I want. 
True, and he did. And that's what I kind of mean. It's like, I think big Hollywood is kind of like a weird way to describe it because Ant-Man's actually the same thing with why I chose Cruella. It's an IP that is already based on something. So the studio has... It's a work-for-hire job, Ant-Man. It, they could get anybody to direct Ant-Man. Edgar Wright would have been great because that would have worked with the tone of the movie. Mm. But they also just as easily got somebody else to do it and it was a financial success anyways. They don't need, in a specific Marvel or Disney or whatever mindset, they don't need anybody specific. It's like, yeah, this is you're working with big IP, but that's specifically big IP. They're just as easily like original pieces, other pieces of IP where they might give you control. There are lower budget movies than that. Tatane is sec- technically something that's in a lower budget category that had total creative control, as we saw. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, I have no idea those, who greenlit that movie, to be honest. Somebody who had the check, because that movie still cost $5 million. And that's just my point, where it's like, I don't think just because somebody has a check means they're a bad guy. It, they're just trying to make sure that their money is not being burnt, <laughs> which... Plenty of times that has also been done throughout Hollywood history. I think that happens more often where you give somebody creative control and you find out they're an idiot upon the film being released. That Which, has to happen a lot more, right? Yeah, and it, it's it's it just goes back to the fact that we're not making paintings here. If everybody's making paintings, everybody could have their painting and it would look exactly how they wanted. Films cost a lot of money. That's just like the reality of it. That's It costs a lot of money, take a lot of effort. And take a lot of time. And people just want to make sure that those things are going how they're supposed to. If the, if the experiment works at the end of the day, great. You figured it out and we'll leave that in the text of film history for the the people who come after us to learn from it and do it themselves. But it takes a lot to let somebody just go out and do whatever the fuck they want. Which is kind of... That's extreme of me to say in reference to the film, folk film movement. Because people can do whatever the fuck they want, kind of, because they also don't have as much money, which does limit you in a certain way. And does it always pan out? I don't know, because, again, the hundreds of people that would have helped you to create your vision, refine your vision, and make your vision come alive in a more studio-based or even just independent-based level, you don't have them around in like this bare-bones level, and it, it can... It can sometimes hurt more than help. And I'm not saying that as a whole that means the folk filmmaking is dead. This is actually a good segue to where I think this is where maybe folk film could do this more in the future is get more people together. I think this is the ultimate fix for whatever the folk film movement is looking for. Create more communities online and find people to come together. Because, yeah, if it, if you don't have anybody in your specific hometown to make a movie with, but you still want to go out and make your short or feature or whatever you want to do with folk film, get online. It's the biggest strength that these people have. It's the biggest reason that these people are organizing. And find people near you who, who want to just as bad as you, who can come together and help you, and then you network and get together on this collaborative thing. And that, that is the beautiful part of it. Well, I feel then... I feel that they already do that. I think with Sheep Theater, we're in a very specific thing here because this is a quarantine film. So that was already the leap for big, um, sh- like shopping around of your idea was already limited. But you've seen his previous film, Chlorine. 
where he did not have that limitation. Yeah. Comparatively, do you think that works within the framework of folk filmmaking that you have critiques for within Sheep Theater, where he had more people to help him? So, yeah, I have seen Chlorine, and I think it does describe symptoms of the larger problems I was talking about, where he had more actors in it. The script seemed like it was more, the script seemed like it was going to a more defined place, though it is still billed as an improv feature film, which I can't co-sign, frankly, but. Well, it's because you're a screenwriter, right? So if films become improv, then you're out of a job. It just kind of feels like, how would I put it? The scenes are structured well in Chlorine, I think. But did they add up to a whole? I don't think so. And I think that's just a, a, a symptom of attempting to do improv feature film, where it's like, you get there on the day to shoot a certain film, you go over how it's going to go. Maybe you do rehearsals on the location. Fine. But there are specifics in when that, within that scene, i.e. the building blocks that is linear storytelling, or even non-linear storytelling. All the details that are taking place in that scene are setting up whatever comes after it. And, and if, if things aren't lining up after a certain point, it, it's like with sheep theater where it's, it's not, it's not coming together after a while. And that's kind of how I felt with Chlorine as well, where it's like, on top of the fact that, again, Dan Lotz and, uh, Joel Dick, his collaborator and kind of, I think mostly does cinematography for him, both also act in that one. Mm-hmm. And as much as I'd like to believe that, that Dan Lotz is a, a former hitman, I just can't. Like, it's not... There's a little bit where I just can't believe in it. Okay, because I didn't know the real story behind Chlorine, but, yeah, Dan Lotz does not look like a former hitman, nor does he look like a tough guy. And I don't mean that it's just like, I don't think he could kick somebody's ass. He probably could. He's a he's a big man. But I don't... He looks way too nice on his face. I can't buy him as convincing tough guy that would go into a bar and clean up no because especially like this is actually some good stuff that'll let him form in con as context he in the movie he's technically a retired hitman who has become a pool boy who is being asked to come out of retirement to kill somebody who is technically like significant other to his sister and then there's a whole other convoluted bit where like they are having relationship problems as brother and sister and that like gives him the crisis of like do i go through with who i am even though i don't have no reason to other than being threatened or do i stay true to my sister and on his face that that story might work if if again you have to be really calculated at, at the script writing phase about setting up those relationships setting up the plot points all of these things but when dan lots is the is the is the hitman and there's a character in the first part of the movie who dies in the first part of the movie who looks like a hitman. And I'd be like, I'd believe it if it's that guy. That's where my problem is. Because there's a guy who's like broad-shouldered, bald head, mean face. I believe he's the hitman. And Dan Lotz is not not a hitman. And that's just typecasting. It's like, you know, Robin Williams, I probably couldn't necessarily believe as a hitman. Because he's mostly a funny guy. Could he maybe do it because of his acting acumen? Yeah, probably now that I say that out loud. But I'm just saying. If... I, and that's the thing. Like, 
I assume in Chlorine, that's a thing where he doesn't look the part all that well. And also, I do notice that, um, because I did bring up a couple of pictures from the film, and he is a big fan of t-shirts, basketball shorts, and flip-flops. And that is also his wardrobe in Sheep Theater. And that's kind of what I mean. It's like he pretty much just plays Dan Lutz in those things. And as much as he, as much as like you can get into it with the acting, there's those other bits where like a costume designer would point out to you, hey, no offense, maybe some pants and a collared shirt would work more for the hitman type or even just something further than that that a costume designer might be able to point out. Maybe shaving the beard, maybe a different haircut and the, I would assume those are things as the director you'd be open to and being like, those enhance my story. Let's go with it. And that that's, I guess, get, brings me to this point where I'm like, I'm not writing off Dan Lotz necessarily when I say these things, because I know all, all of these are also like learning through experience, which is fair. And what it makes me want to do is look through the rest of Dan Lotz's work to see if he's considered these things and be like, if he's considering these things in the future projects he might actually build up like a foundation for himself. And I'd like that. It's just, I got to see those things work out. Well, I know that one of his films, I think it's his first film called the long con, which was more traditionally made. Yeah. I think it also has the biggest budget out of all of them. It also, I don't think he stars in it. It It's really, it's really bad because I haven't seen these two films. I just know that they exist. And I've seen, I think a very short video. Yeah. Of him explaining them. Because that's the biggest thing about Dan Lotz as a filmmaker. Is he explains literally everything that goes into his films. From yeah. beginning to end. Which, which is fair. a huge it's a huge resource for people who want to make movies. Especially on the cheap. And actually this is, this is uh, this reminds me of that third tenet. From way back at the beginning about folk filmmaking. Uh, that's one that uh, it, a lot of people advocate for. Is just stripping down the mysticism that is you know, uh, film production and, and letting everybody know this is how I, I did it. These are all my tricks as the magician. Please go out and, and use this to learn for yourself. I think in another week I might have said that that's a bad thing and maybe there's some part of me that's like, no, you should leave your tricks hidden because that's part of the magic of filmmaking. People want to know and want to come to see your tricks. There's another part of me that this is kind of what I think of the audience for folk filmmaking. I think the audience is ultimately other filmmakers, which is fine. I'm not against that either because it's it's defining an audience to, to market to, to think about when you're making these things. As much as I'd like to say 10,000 people, random people, went and came and watched Sheep Theater, which is, I think, the view count as of when we watched it. Yeah. Ultimately, I think that's 10,000 people that have a cursory interest in film production is really what I think is going on there, which is fine because they may also like the story. But it's like when you make a horror movie, who are you marketing to? Probably teens, probably couples who are going on a date. You know, you're searching for your audience. And that's what I think is going on with folk filmmaking is getting in front of other filmmakers to be like, okay, what do you guys think? What do you think I should do next? Whether that's criticism or praise or whatever. It's one of those things where looking at the folk film movement as a whole, like idealistically, I want to get behind it because it's just, 
It's one of those things where it's a crazy dream, but God, it's a beautiful dream where you can just make movies, say fuck it to everyone else, just express your art how you want it to, and you'll get like these great works of cinema out of it. But the examples that I have seen, some parts of it that are really good, I think we went on record saying that Dan Lotz does have an eye for for cinema. He is very good at composing shots, visual storytelling. He's very good at this. His sound design is also pretty solid. But goddamn, this is uh, one of those movies where I feel the only way this is going to be a big thing is if Dan Lotz explodes as a commercial filmmaker in the next five to ten years. And this gets like a Criterion release. Basically. <laughs> I don't think Chief is going to find Criterion. <laughs> Bruh, like, let's be honest. People are advocating for a YouTube Greatest Hits Criterion release. Where it has, I think it's called um, I'm at the Zoo. It's the very first video ever uploaded to YouTube. They want that on a Criterion release. Yeah, and that's like a specific cultural. Like, that's. That's like the difference between, or, or that YouTube video is like when we saw, um, like the rotos or the you know the film of the horse running, way back yeah. when they first figured out moving images. That's like how historically significant that is. So part of me understands that, but nonetheless, I don't know. I'll be interested to see what else is going on with in folk film because I've amassed a playlist of things in kind of checking out Dan Lotz and other articles. So I, I, I'm, I'm interested to see what, what is outside of Dan, you know? I, and I think he would want me to go see those things. And I, and I think I agree with him there, that there are some interesting things to watch. But I'm going to come in with those tempered expectations that ultimately kind of antithetical to his point that this was why we should release these for free. I don't know if I can trust the filmmaker just by going in. I need them to build that trust with me as a viewer. And those mm. things are going to happen through nailing a story, getting your technical stuff down, and executing. It's one of those things where sheep theater might not be your bag, but the folk film movement you could get into, but you're very apprehensive about it. I'll be, I'll be apprehensive, yes. I'll be measured in my expectations and if i'm surprised i will be very thrilled but i am expecting a little bit of letdown somewhere along the way as you are with big studio films as well that's not to say that those things can't flop either i mean we have watched big studio films that have turned out to be massive like bombs yeah Garage. i mean yeah one of the um i mean and some of them are great i mean one of the earliest films you and me ever watched together was scott pilgrim and that was a big financial flop mm -hmm. even though it became like this cult hit way later but that's neither here nor there what is here is a second opinion david so i have here some reviews of sheep theater now i'm gonna ask you a question because these reviews are rated one through five I'm not sure where you actually hit on this. I think you're probably giving this like a three, right? So where do you want to see? The great reviews or the bad reviews? This is a good question. Because frankly, I think you're giving me a little bit of a generous take there. I'd really rate this more around the two level. Wow. I mean, really? it should be apparent in our conversation. There are things that did not work in Shape Theater. As much as I wanted them to, they're just things that did not work. I mean, I could, I understand that. It's just, 
it might just be a thing where I've seen way worse films than this. Which is why I want to see the one. I want to see the one comment to see, like, are they being too harsh on this? Okay, so the lowest reviews I have are one and a half stars, okay? So, number one. Please, please, just pick a tone and stick to it. It's hard enough to nail one, let alone cramming in every little thing you like. Style for the sake of style is no style at all. And the only other one and a half star review on here goes as follows. I didn't particularly enjoy the film, but I respect the hustle. And honestly, I think that's really where you and me are at, right? Not really dig digging the film, but I respect the hustle it took to make it. Yeah, because I agree with the fact that there are tonal problems within this and that they're not really for any other reason that that's what he was feeling when he was shooting it, is to go that direction. Whereas much more measured calculations, like I've been saying, would have kept those things more congealed. But like you said, can't disrespect the hustle because he made a feature film when it's already incredibly hard to do so. And... I don't know. I can't argue with that. <sighs> I mean, I think this is this is a lot. This is better than like the two star review you were giving it. I think this is at least a three. Granted, I've seen some really bad movies, so I'm a little biased. But I mean, this movie was fine. It had a, some pacing problems, and it was uh, the tone was all over the place. And those are the big things I have issue with. Ultimately, yes. And if anything else, I continue to reiterate that this review comes with the idea that I want to see more of Dan Lotz, and I want to—I'll uh, be—I'll be rooting for it in the end. So, what a ride! What a what a time that is, Sheep Theater. As the curtain closes, we certainly learned a lot today, haven't we, Dean? Yeah, yeah. Man, this I feel really bad talking shit on Dan Lotz's work. I don't think we actually talked that much shit on it. I think we we pointed out some very legitimate things go, that are wrong in the film. But, you know, it's I hope personal. It's not, Yeah, you know. it's nothing personal. I we had no idea about half the shit about Dan Lotz until we got into this. But, you know, I would hope to see something more from him. I know he's doing his 12 feature projects and that's true um i he is coming out with another horror movie sometime this month which i guess oh, really? a good thing to point out is i guess if there's one thing you might want to go do is check that out because maybe there's something again that we've critiqued on sheep theater that is performed in uh performed in this horror movie that's come out i he released a teaser for it i don't think it's titled but he's released a video about how he's working on that so go to 922 films and check that out maybe and you send Dan lots some love and give love to his other work. And, you know, let us know if you've found something inside of those things where if we miss something, I don't know. Maybe we could circle back around to the folk film conversation later, as I think we will. And we'll, yeah. uh, we'll review our notes, per se. But yeah, so I can't wait. What are you going to watch this week, David, after watching folk film? Because I know what I'm watching. Yeah, you know, I, I revisited some stuff from past episodes i think i finally got around to bad lieutenant protocol new new orleans that nick cage uh piece um one other thing i watched was bottle rocket so that might be an avenue i go down is i want to look a little bit more into wes anderson films because bottle rocket was his first so i might start jumping down that rabbit hole i mean what about you dean what are you going to be checking out 
Well, I actually made good. I watched Scanners. Uh, very weird movie, and I digged the shit out of it. People's head explodes in like the first fifteen minutes. I gotta, I gotta enjoy it. Uh, but the movie I found this week that I really dug a lot more than I thought I would was Bubba Hotep, starring Bruce Campbell and Ozzie Davis, playing um, Elvis Presley and John F. Kennedy. And Ozzie Davis plays John F. Kennedy, and when Bruce Campbell tells him, you know, not to be mean, but you're black. John F. Kennedy was a white dude. And Ozzie Davis like, they dyed my skin after Dallas so they could hide the fact that I lived through the assassination attempt. And that movie's fantastic. It's about this mummy that attacks this retirement home in Texas. It's fantastic. I want to do it for this show. Okay, well, maybe we will check out Bubba Hotep eventually because that sounds like the most batshit insane thing I've ever heard, but... It's also Bruce Campbell's greatest acting performance as a thespian I've ever seen. And I can th- get down with some Bruce Campbell, definitely. So, maybe maybe we will soon. Who knows? But that is a, that's about it for this week on Too Obscure for TV. It's been a great ride. If you want to check us out, you can follow us and listen to us wherever you get podcasts. That being on Spotify, Google Podcasts, etc., etc., etc. You can go to our anchor.fm link to find all of those links. You can also find us on our YouTube channel in the frame. We post this and other podcasts that Dean Namely works on. Hello. Dean, why don't you rattle off a few of those titles so that people can check them out? Yeah, the the short list. Uh, So I do two other podcasts that we upload on that YouTube channel. That is the Film Club podcast that me and my girlfriend do. We talk about mm, kind of like nostalgia picks, horror movies, a lot more kind of closer to home kind of films for us. And then... I also do the Film Odyssey podcast that me and my brother do, where we go through um, the AFI Top 100 list and we talk about each one and kind of why they're good and why they're bad. My brother's not a cinema person, so it's really interesting to hear him talk about these movies. But those are the other two podcasts that are on there. You can be free to check them out. They're really fun. How delightful. Well, everybody go check those out. And next week, I guess, we'll be coming back with Suspiria, the 1977 yes. horror film Dean has pointed out to me. And we will be talking a lot about the, well, let's just say the execution in more ways than one. It's going to be great, boys. See you next week. See you then. <laughs>